0: Hey, Marvelites, let's tell you about Marvel Made. Marvel Made is Marvel's new platform, which features never-before-seen prestige Marvel products and high-end collectibles for Marvel's biggest fans.
1: That's right, each item will be released on a limited time basis throughout the year and will be available for purchase through a mix of limited runs, flash sales, and minimum pre-orders.
0: The inaugural product is the Marvel Made Scotty Young Premiere Bundle.
1: This bundle is limited to 2,500 bundles and includes a limited edition base set of 10 new enamel pins based on Eisner Award winning artist Scotty Young's unique designs. and These pins are exclusive to Marvel Made.
0: There are also five additional exclusive enamel pins that are only available as part of this bundle, as well as an oversized hardcover notebook with an original Scotty Young cover featuring advanced suit Spider-Man from Marvel Spider-Man video game. And
1: it also comes with an exclusive Scotty Young variant cover for Excalibur number 1.
0: Marvel-made blind packs are also available. They include two random limited edition enamel pins from the exclusive base set of 10 pins.
1: Previously only available at select pop culture conventions, this bundle and the blind packs mark the first time these types of pins have been directly available to True Believers online.
0: You can order yours right now at marvelmade.net. That's marvelmade.net. Hello, Marvelites, lights you are listening to marvel's pull list for new comics and other comics some of the new comics releasing wednesday july 22nd 2020 i'm ryan panagos aka agent m
1: and i'm tucker marcus
0: tucker my dear boy i feel like a different person after dealing with the worst migraine of my life yesterday
1: thank goodness yeah
0: what (laughs) a day how are you Uh, i'm doing all right i'm doing
1: all right i'm 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 doing better now that like i'm literally not like Walking around my apartment, going, "Oh my god! I hope Brian's okay today." Which I have been doing recently, which I, you know, did not anticipate. Um, glad to glad to know you're 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 feeling better today.
0: Yeah, you know, I have a weird thing. Like I, I have this. It sort of ties into the way magic works in the Marvel universe, where there's like a, a cost to everything, right? You know, if you do a spell, there's something, there's a price to be paid, and that's the way mm-hmm. I. I, I often think about life as like something good happens something bad happens something bad happens something good happens there's a balance uh that i i tend to see just the way my my vision of reality skews and so they you know ceiling falling on us at 2 a.m things are things will swing back the oh. other way uh yeah. you know cat gets sick things will swing back the other way it's you you find uh you got to find ways to get into that positive and i, I believe we'll get there I think there's there's positivity <laughs> and possibility. Um, then you know one of the positives. Great week of books. We got a whole lot of good comics yeah. to talk about. Uh, we got a great guest coming on for our reading club later in the episode, and that actually ties into our first issue because our guest later on will be Peter David, writer of the original story, The Death of Jean de where he introduced the character Sin Eater, and that is tying right into our first title of the week, which is Amazing Spider-Man: Sin's Rising Prelude. Written by Nick Spencer. Art by Guillermo Sana, Colors by Jordi Belair. And letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Uh, this one is basically... It's a, obviously called Sin's Rising Prelude. So it's the, the lead-in to the big sin, Sin's Rising storyline. is going to be hitting Amazing Spider-Man. Um, but it is probably the second sequel, I guess, to the original Death of Gene DeWolf story. Um, Peter will tell us a little bit about the original story and the second one he wrote Um, this issue this uh, new one by nick covers all that ground so even if you haven't read those originals don't worry about it you'll get caught up right here and it is dark oh my gosh it's dark
1: yeah it was this is one of those that feels like super spoilery and i i just love the boldness that that nick enters this story with he's just staking his claim and saying this is the story i'm going to tell and just going for it and i love i also love the kind of there's a lot of like classic spidey vibes in here as you might expect considering you know the the origins of the sin eater and the death of gene de wolf um uh, uh uh and there's also like a bunch of noir kind of elements in it as well which i'm always just a huge fan of
0: yeah i think the the noir thing is a great point because get art with Geordie's colors like really evokes that super super well um, if anybody out there knows the artist uh, Eduardo Hiso, who worked on uh, 100 Bullets and a bunch of great titles for Marvel over the years, some cool Wolverine stuff and much more, um, he, like, that's some of the vibe of this. So with, you know, there's a lot of others, but like that sort of hard boiled, dark, noir, nasty horror vibes um, coming coming hard in the storyline and then we're just going to dive into it for the next you know numbered issue of amazing spider-man but hold on to your to your you know your your booties because this one's going to be a wild one.
1: Oh yeah and speaking of uh holding on to your butts i would also suggest the same thing with daredevil Number 21, uh, which is our next book this week. It's written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Marco Kiketo, colors by Mattia Yunco, uh, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This is the start of a new story arc called Truth, Dare. And, uh, it, you know, every single time we read a Daredevil issue, I have so much to say about it because I think this is one of those books that has it's, – it's so jam-packed and it's examining so many different um, – rich subjects and so much uh, from mass personal life to the subject of kind of law and order in Hell's Kitchen to, uh, you know, the identity of a superhero, how that relates to the community around a superhero, all of that stuff. But I think if I could assemble my dream perfect creative team for a comic book, period, it would be written by Chip Zdarsky, would have art by Marco Coqueto. Uh, And it would have covers by Julian Titino Tedesco. But as that applies to the narrative, this story continues to have like huge narrative beats that feel like enormous uh, and so important to the larger story being told. But that's just happening issue after issue. I think that's evidence of how good this story is. Wilson Fisk is involved right from the start. We see some really fascinating stuff happening with him and Detective Cole. And beyond that, I don't want to say too much about it because I think this one really quickly gets into spoilers about maybe halfway through. Um, But there's one or two really awesome cameos in here as well, which are always a delight to see from this creative team to see how they execute those things. It is so jam-packed in every single way. Can't get enough of it. I mean, this is really, really... Where, you know, I, I just want to dive into this world and, and exist within there for hours and hours.
0: It, it doesn't, like, the subject matter doesn't necessarily remind me. But the feeling I get reading the way this team is doing Daredevil right now is the feeling I got when I was reading Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Malev on Daredevil as a fan wow. before I started working on yeah. Marvel. Like, I remember literally sitting in my apartment in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. This was, like, 2003. Um, way before all the hipsters came in, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and uh, I was sitting there, and I remember reading 27 or 28, some one of those issues of Daredevil in that run, and I read it, and I just went, looked at it, and I threw it down, and I just like, <laughs> sat in the rocking chair and just thought about it for a while. I was yeah. Like, that's some good-ass comics. <laughs> and that's what Daredevil is, good-ass comics. Just like Empire number two, or should I say Empire. Number two, written by Al Ewing and Dan Slott, script by Al Ewing, art by Valerio Skiti colors by Marte Gracia, and letters by BC's Joe Caramagna. This one is really, like, everything is moving, moving, moving here. The If you don't want spoilers for this storyline, uh, I would skip ahead because we have four, three or four Empire books yeah. to talk about today. Uh, there's a lot of Empire happening, so... We're going to get into some of it. Um, but the end of the first issue of Empire, which I, I'm really, really glad it went down the way it did, sort of like set the stage and said, like, no, this is what's going on. You know, here's here's the good, here's the bad, here's the forces, here's, you know, possibilities. And then it's just, like, off to the races. Like, you know, no there, – there'll probably be swerves and, and feints and all kinds of cool stuff happening, as is the case with any big story. But it was like – setting things up in such a great way to really launch into a cosmic but still grounded epic like this uh, you've got the Kotati versus everybody happening right now it's like the kree scroll alliance the avengers the fantastic four eventually like everyone on earth and this issue is sort of the okay we know what happened at the beginning of the story in the first issue where do we go from here and you get to see, you know, the Avengers sort of get out of some, some pickles. The Fantastic Four do the same thing, sort of regrouping, figuring out, oh, we done, screwed up. How do we unscrew up everything? And that's part of the fun here. And you get, you know, Al just, he's firing on all cylinders. He's like like Chip in a lot of ways, you know, completely different writer, but really having a renaissance in terms of quality and output and, and, and really potential showing off. We get to see lots of action in here, as you'd expect, cool uses of powers, and you get to see Al really play with the Fantastic Four a lot, uh, the Avengers having great moments as a great Thor beat in here with Iron Man and uh, Captain America, a huge bit of business for Captain Marvel, who does something, takes something that we've talked about, but if you haven't been spoiled on it, I won't spoil it here, but we're really like... Rushing into a big, big storyline, full steam ahead, and it's it's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, that was, you know, a lot of what you're saying about the enormity of this story is really striking to me. And that was exactly what I was feeling when I was reading Empire Avengers uh, number uh, one, which is written by Jim Zub with art by Carlos Magno, uh, colors by Espen Grudetjern, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. It felt like every single time I was turning the page I was like oh that this this character this character this character so many different people getting involved and I'll say people although maybe that's not quite the right term which is one of the most fun aspects of this I gotta say you get about five pages in and immediately for me the excitement of seeing some of these characters pop up boom you just turn the page and you're hit with Um, Some characters that I know are big time fan favorites that we don't get always to see in every single book every week. Um, And it's so exciting. And for that reason, I'm a little bit reluctant to talk about um, who they are exactly. But to see the Avengers taking their minute to discuss having their different ways of going about a plan um, and to see the characters within that team emerge and just to to get a great sense of – oh, of course that's what this person would think. And of course that's what they're concerned about. And to see how those clash, to see how sometimes they gel is really, really exciting. I also love the what feels like the magnetic pull of certain spots on the map. And to see where we're heading, literally geographically in this story is so much fun. And then exactly like you said, to have the you know formative foes that are coming together and, and really presenting a huge um, obstacle to... The Avengers and to a bunch of the other characters that we see pop up in here is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Uh, And, man, I just – I want to pay money to see Carlos draw Captain America's costume. Like the armor, Uh the the way he draws the little plates on it. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Also friggin' great is our third Empire book this week. It is Empire X-Men number one written by Jonathan Hickman and Teenie Howard. Art – by Matteo Bufagni, Colors by Nolan Woodard, and Letters by VC's Clayton Cowles. I was not expecting this book to be this funny um, <laughs> or just to be what it is. Like, I was like, all right, I'm in. Give me an X Men book, tie it into Empire, give me something cool. It's got Jonathan and Teenie. I'm friggin' on it. Matteo, so good. Everything about this on its surface screamed great. And then you start reading it and it ties into um scarlet witch in really interesting ways and like scarlet witch and avengers disassembled and house of m and i'm starting i'm like what is going on and then with Krakoa, and like it starts threading all these things and it gets to this point where it turns into like a peter jackson wh- horror movie almost uh because you get to a point in the story where it's a big jonathan hickman uh you know just text page where it says Alien plants versus mutant zombies in like the the current Krakoan and X Men font and everything like that, and I was as we were lo- sitting here and I'm looking at the issue, I just realized that this page says plants versus zombies, like the game, and I was just like, oh, you friggin' jerks! <laughs> I love this so much, <laughs> but it's alien plants versus mutant zombies, and it is nuts. This book is bananas it's got the x corporation involved which is something i loved during the the time of uh grant morrison's new x-men that's a thread that i haven't seen pop up in a while it's got magneto it's got uh angel it's got yes mutant zombies alien plants it's got monet turning into penance it is awesome it's gory it's just laugh out loud funny at times it rules so hard
1: oh yeah we go on now hey it's free comic book day 2020, Spider-Man Venom number one. We have a couple of stories going on. Uh, the first is an amazing Spider-Man and Black Cat story called Moonlighting, which is written by Jed McKay with art by Patrick Gleason, colors by David Curiel and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This is a delightful story. And then the non-stop action that you get for the rest of the story is... The best. And the second story that we have in here is a Venom story, of course, uh, and it is by storytellers Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman, with inks by J.P. Meyer, colors by Frank Martin, and letters again by VCs Clayton Cowles. The story that's told in here is um, a really, really wonderful addition to this the story that's going on in the Venom made series. And um, I know there's a ton of Venom diehards out there, and uh, I think, of course they will and definitely should pick up this issue um, to get every single last juicy bit of Donnie and Ryan Venom story they can.
0: All right, let's go back to some X-Men stuff for kind of another horror comedy title with Hellions, number two, written by Zeb Wells, art by Steven Segovia, colors by David Curiel, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Uh, I love this book so much. It is the book I didn't know I wanted for all the Dawn of X stuff, it's got the you know like the wildest team. Um, you know this Hellion squad is not the Hellions that were the uh, arch you know rivals to the New Mutants of the 80s. This is a team that has Havoc and Psylocke. Really, Psylocke watching over Havoc, who's kind of been in a weird place the last couple of years. Nanny and Orphan Maker, two of my favorite weird characters. Um, Gray Crow, who was an original Marauder. Wild Child, who, you know, if you know your Age of Apocalypse, he, in the Age of Apocalypse, Wild Child was, like, the dog that Sabretooth kept on a leash, Um, but he was a member of Alpha Flight and Beta Flight and stuff. Uh, Empath, who was an original Hellion, and um, in this issue, we know that bad things are happening. This team goes to—basically, the team's mission is to find therapy in murder, in, like, (laughs) destruction and death— Uh, because they can't kill humans, that's against the Kirkoan bylaws. They can't kill other mutants, that's also against things. But there's a gray area for them to let loose, because these are some dangerous and bad people. And so they are sent off to clear out one of Sinister's old clone farms. It just happens to be where Alex and Scott Summers were, uh, were orphans at. But, man, this just devolves into violence and mayhem and just bad feelings and big surprises and more zombies kind of and messed up clones and cool stuff happening uh, there are funny bits in here there's nasty bits it is just like go 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 um, non-stop a bit of action bit of horror I friggin love this book it is one of my favorites currently in the x-men um, you know suite of books highly highly recommend it And Madeline Pryor is back. So for anybody who's like all about that Inferno vibe, uh, get up on this book.
1: I got to say we don't often get to give little juicy little – little I am using the word juicy a lot right now. But little nuggets of maybe little teases or info. But for those loyal poll list listeners who – have now made it into minute whatever of this episode and are listening very intently. Um, I I think I can say this. The stuff to come with the Hellions in Ten of Swords is so fun. Uh, That's all I'll say. It's so fun. It's so exciting. I sat in on a meeting um, and I was taking notes for it about uh, that was led by uh, uh, Jordan, uh, D. White about head of, you know, the editor of the X books. And he was talking about all the stuff to come to tennis court. so much fun. That's all I'll say. Um, get excited. X fans, get excited. Hellions fans. Our next book though, this week is Lords of empire, emperor Hulkling number one. That's sorry. Lords of empire. Uh, Emperor Hulkling number one. Uh, It's written by Chip Zdarsky and Anthony Oliveira with pencils by Manuel Garcia, inks by Cam Smith, colors by Triona Farrell, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. The story that Dan Slott and Al Ewing are telling at large with Empire, the story that they came up with and that they've worked on for a really long time now, is this enormous kind of universal story about like ancient enemies and a new truce um and a new enemy and the kind of superheroes who are caught in between it all it's an enormous story but to have the fact that hulkling hulkling is is at the center of it all is the linchpin of this entire story as the new emperor of this kind of new grand society or or collection of people is just so fascinating and this is a character that going back to young avengers has so much uh richness and depth to him there is so much to examine so much to explore and, you know, obviously, you know, what makes Young Avengers one of those stories that, for me, honestly, even on a month-by-month basis, continues to enshrine itself as one of the great books of the last however many years um, is, you know, I think it's it's, it's it's a lot of that can be put on um, Hulkling and, and the story and the relationship between Hulkling and Wiccan. So, to examine that here in this issue is... So exciting and really does it beautifully. Um, uh, This is exactly the kind of book that I'm personally a huge fan of with one of these enormous events that we have going on like Empire right now, where it's one foot in the big, giant, crazy action and one foot in just deeply personal character stuff. Uh, And uh, I think it pays off so beautifully uh, throughout the entire thing. Great issue. Really big fan.
0: Yeah. And for all you Young Avengers fans, there's lots of like great like fan service for you in here um i'll just leave it at that this book it it rules really really good uh another really good issue this week is new mutants number 11 written by ed brisson amazing art by flaviano colors by carlos lopez and letters by VCS travis lanham like flaviano has been uh a fan favorite of mine for a, a bunch of years when he was doing, you know, issues of Power Man and Iron Fist and various other things. He just comes in, he knocks it out of the park uh, and sort of like goes back away for a little bit and comes back and just continues to crush it. And this issue, especially with uh, the colors in here by Carlos, just it's so big and kind of weird at times. He draws this one character which looks unlike anything else you see. Like, it's just almost like you have to train your brain to understand that it's a, a person. And I think that's part of why the character looks like that. That's part of being a mutant sometimes. And I think that's so so like special about this issue in the storyline. It's got a great magic moment where she comes in and she's just like, I am the best. Bow down to me. Um, she doesn't say that because that's bad dialogue, but she says much better things. Um, there's just tons of crazy weird stuff happening throughout it. It's got, uh, Glob cooking food to get his friends ready for a fight. It's got weird moments, (laughs) quiet moments, and, and big, um, like, like gear up. Things are about to heat up for the new mutants vibes, which I love. I love, love, love.
1: Oh yeah, um, uh, now going for from uh, the Marvel Universe over to the Star Wars universe with Star Wars Doctor Afra Number Two. It's written by Alyssa Wong with art by Marika Cresta, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Uh, uh, Ryan, you and I spoke with Alyssa on an episode of the Pull List, uh, and it was so cool to see uh, Alyssa's analysis uh, and reading of. Uh, Some of the original uh, Dr. Aphra stories that were so formative to that character, but in a similar way to how I felt this week about one or two books, I just love the boldness um, and just the staking of a kind of claim with the story, planting a flag in the ground and saying, this is my story. This is the story I'm going to tell. This is my angle on this character. This is my vision for this from, you know, the smallest detail to the broadest kind of story um, decisions. And I think that's definitely what's going on here. I'm a huge fan of the new supporting cast of characters that we have in this series. Um, Ronan Tag being right up there. Uh, among them. I think we talk, we used to talk about it a lot with uh, Symbiote Spider-Man, maybe? Superior Spider-Man. That's what it was. And Chris Robinson talking about how fun it is to just read jerks like that. Um, and uh, I definitely feel the same with this. I, I, I think that is absolutely one of the strong points of um, these first two issues is not just the command that Alyssa has of uh, of Dr. Afra herself, and Afra's relationships, Afra's most crucially for me, kind of personal struggles. That's one of the really cool things is that I think um, this series has a legacy of doing and does so wonderfully. Is that Afra's struggles, oftentimes come from a personal side of things more than the kind of uh, just a, 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 a supervillain or something like that, a grander force. Obviously, there's a ton of that and it's excellently done. But to see the personal conflict, the relationship problems and issues that um, have just as much of an impact on this character's life feel so true to the character, feel so essential to the character. And I think Elissa does a wonderful job of balancing all of that at the same time. There's so much to be excited about with this book and again, Marika Cresta I think just brings it on the art. Perfect, perfect casting choice to put this entire creative team together and I think they're
0: killing it. Speaking of perfect casting choices, let's talk about Wolverine number three. Seriously. By Benjamin Percy, man, and art by Adam Kuber, colors by Frank Martin, uh, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. I just want to curse a lot and talk about this book. I know. Drink a beer and like stomp around a lot. (laughs) It rules. It rules so hard. The book opens up with Wolverine and Magneto drinking at the Green Lagoon, which is the the, like tiki bar in the middle of Krakoa where Blob is the bartender and Wolverine gets Magneto drunk in order to take Magneto's helmet. That's how the book opens up. If you don't want to (laughs) buy this comic book after hearing that, then I don't know what more I can tell you. I don't know that there's anything more that's going to sell you on how freaking great this book is because the first three pages are that it just gets even better and it's wilder and it's wolverine with a team and and like going out you get to see at one point wolverine thinking about his life in it there's adam draws this panel of juggernaut uh, and this is over a two-page spread it's beautiful adam always is one of my favorite artists in the way he lays out pages they're never just like panel, 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 panel. He like looks at two page spreads like, okay, I'm going to put a large vertical panel here. Then I'll do three really wide panels across the two pages. And then I'll do another vertical panel, maybe another little panel over here. He's like, he, he just breaks it up in such beautiful ways and makes, it's like, and it, you never lose track of things. So anyway, there's three panels of flashbacks and one of them has juggernaut punching through wolverine and it is gnarly as hell i just keep looking at the way he draws juggernaut's face in that helmet and i'm just like man so damn good uh and i wanted to read uh a, like a little bit of dialogue in here uh, or um i should say uh, some captions for that wolverine's thinking about talking about like where he is in his life and um you know he says he always goes by his gut instinct. That's always been my true north, the compass I chase. Because somebody who takes the time to think out and plan ahead is somebody who believes in a better future. I've never been that guy, but I'm trying to be that guy now. That's why this time I had a plan. And I think that's such a cool, like, sense of what this book is. It's Wolverine has always been here and there, and, like, this gives Wolverine a little bit of a, a nudge and a purpose and a push and, like... A direction as everything for the the x-men and for mutant kind is a little bit different now and you get all the slashy cool you know bub bits but you also get him thinking in different ways and it's gorgeous frank martin's colors are incredible and explosive and beautiful and like warm when they need to be there's this great scene at the end that's so touching I love this Wolverine book. I'm so glad we have a Wolverine title again.
1: Yeah, completely agreed. And so much exciting stuff to come in that series. Um, uh, Okay, our last book of the week that we're covering is X-Men Fantastic Four, number four. It's written by Chip Zdarsky, who's very busy this week with pencils by Terry Dotson, inks by Rachel Dotson, and Ransom Getty colors by Laura Martin and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is another one of those books, I don't know if I'm just in a frame of mind this week, but that just has so many individual elements that I'm such an enormous fan of. And so you can literally just present this in like bullet point format to say, these are the characters that are showing up here. And this is their kind of... These are the obstacles. The, this is kind of what's going down. Just in the like barest sense. And I would instantly be on board. Um, and it, it's funny. This is a, this is a series that I've been super, super eager to dig back into. Uh, and I'm so, so happy that we're back into it. Um, uh, not least because of the Dotson's incredible art in here, which just never, ever, ever fails to disappoint. Um, always exceeds expectations despite um you know us knowing how incredible uh uh they are uh, it still is just uh, absolutely top-notch stuff but you have stuff in here with not just um franklin kind of who is uh at the the center of this story whose struggle um in deciding between you know which family he uh, wants to kind of move forward with at the moment uh you have that side of things, you have uh, uh, the rest of the Fantastic Four, obviously you have Charles, you have Magneto, you have others. I don't know how much, uh, how much else I want to say you have, I mean, Dr. Doom who uh, has been previously involved in this book. Um, It's just, it's, it's so much fun Um, and really, really, um, you know, pulls on the heartstrings. It's incredible in that way how versatile this book has been because it's been the kind of peak of drama um, at the center of all the exciting stuff going on with the X-Men right now. Um, And obviously there's so much personal... Uh, kind of weight that's brought to that, just given the the familial nature of this story. Uh, But when this creative team really decides to to ring that bell, it resonates in a huge way. Um, And then there's another side of it, and this is something that I've really, really, really been a big fan of. We've talked about Tom Muller's design work uh, across the X-Books and how much that has added to everything going on in the world of the X-Men right now. I mean, it, it honestly can't be understated. And it's a, a kind of a funny thing to think about just like, oh, just the literal graphic design choices and the the uh, supplementary material that goes with each book, how that really elevates everything that's going on in this corner of the Marvel Universe into something entirely else. And, and you know, I fully credit Jonathan Hickman and Tom Muller and the uh, entire, you know, creative team uh, on the X side of things that uh, has, uh, really allowed that to reach its full potential. This book, um, which I think if I'm, if I'm not misremembering, Chip actually, uh, uh, did the graphic design for himself, which I know is actually kind of a funny thing in a, in a way that he's, uh, um, a man of many talents because I actually also know that Chip did a redesign of the Daredevil logo, just kind of like Pro bono. He just he just decided there are a couple little tweaks he wanted to do when he launched that uh, new series. Um, but the way that the graphic kind of design and the supplementary material in this book adds to the story. One, there's a great map of the and Great, the Krakoan gates, which I thought was awesome and so, so interesting. Um, but there's also a way that that the the design work in this ties into the story in such a fascinating way that exactly just hits my personal sweet spot of like, it's that moment where those two things collide, where it's no longer just supplementary material, where it's really impactful on the story. Um, and you're just, you know, turn the page, turn the page and, and just so absorbed by what's going on in just essentially text and some, you know, logos and stuff. It's really, really, really cool. It's one of those things that makes, you know, this book and, and everything going on in the next side of things just so so special right now um this is a great issue like i said runs the gamut in every single way um just just excellent stuff huge fan
0: and the last scene in here i feel like is one of those very important put a pin on in this issue in this last scene i feel like it's just relevant and important to whatever happens going forward i don't know that for sure but i was like oh damn oh damn (laughs) yeah that was really cool (laughs) hell of an issue hell of a story uh tucker what do we got for collections this week
1: collections this week include amazing spider-man 2099 companion trade paperback avengers by jason aaron volume six Starbrand Reborn, uh, Eternals by Jack Kirby, The Complete Collection, Miles Morales Volume 3 Family Business, Ruins of Ravencroft, Venom by Donnie Cates Volume 4, Venom Island, Wolverine Weapon X, and X-Force by Benjamin Percy uh, Volume 1
0: yeah uh on marvel unlimited this week uh there's a whole bunch of stuff in there a new issue of avengers some jessica jones blind spot which is great Um, uh, iron man 2020 number one so you can get on that um plenty more that you can check out oh venom the end that book is bananas banana <laughs> maybe the first word that my daughter has said because we say bananas a lot in this uh but it's real good lots of books to check out of course you can see the full list of all of these comics on marvel.com whether the new ones the marvel limited or the collections and uh without further ado it is time for mr peter david to tell us a little bit about the death of gene DeWolf. Peter, thanks for joining us here on Marvel's Pull List. Uh, We are talking about the death of Gene DeWolf. And before we started recording, we we were getting a little insight into how the story came to be. Could you please tell us?
2: Owsley decided at the time, and now he goes by the name Christopher Priest. At the time he was Jim Owsley. He decided he wanted to kill off Gene DeWolf and he wanted me to do it. I have no idea why. I don't know what Gene ever did to him. (laughs) But he wanted to kill her off and he wanted it to happen in a four issue storyline in Spectacular Spider Man. And he wanted me to write it. I think he wanted me to do it because he felt that since I was a new writer, I would have a more, I would be able to bring a more dark and intense angle to it. Uh, Al Milgram is many things, but ultimately he's a really sweet guy. And writing dark and intense things is not really in in, uh, Al's strong suit. So Alslin decided that he wanted me to write it. And it was interesting because when we killed her off, we were deluged by letters from fans saying, oh, Gene DeWolf is my favorite character. Except I wound up going through the letters that we received for the entirety of the previous year, during which time Gene DeWolf had not appeared in the comic book. And would you like to know how many letters we got asking, where is Gene DeWolf?
0: I would love that.
2: None. (laughs) I mean, if Mary Jane disappeared for a year with no explanation, people would be writing and going, where the hell is Mary Jane? Gene DeWolf vanished for a year, Nobody asked where she was. Nobody cared where she was. Then we killed her off and suddenly she was everyone's favorite character. (laughs) So that early experience (laughs) taught me to take what fans say with a sizable grain of salt. (laughs) Uh,
0: At this point, how long had you been actually writing stories for Marvel? It wasn't terribly long, was it? No, a couple of months. Yeah. I mean, I had
2: approached Owsley with an idea for a Spider-Man story. I said, why don't we do a modern-day version of Leopold and Loeb? And his response was, who's Leopold and Loeb? And once I explained who Leopold and Loeb were, um, that story wound up turning into my very first issue of Spider-Man, which I think was Spectacular Spider-Man, I think was issue 103. I could be wrong about that. Um, He then hired me to do two more fill-ins for Amazing Spider-Man, another fill-in for Spectacular. And then he said, I want to do a four-issue storyline in which we kill off Gene DeWolf. And I went, okay. Um, I didn't have anything against Jean, but <laughs> Owsley wanted her dead. And for me, it was work. So I went, okay. And I wrote the death of Jean Wolf. at which point Owsley was so pleased with what I was doing that he fired Al Milgram off of Spectacular Spider-Man and made me the regular <laughs> writer. A move that did
1: not endear him to people in editorial. Where were you, uh, uh, kind of in your career path, Peter? What were you doing before you you entered, you know, your your first foray into Marvel and 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 how old were you? All that stuff. I was the assistant direct sales manager at Marvel Comics.
2: Wow. Uh, the direct sales department was and is the department responsible for getting comic books into stores. Well, or more specifically, we would get the comic books to distributors who would then get them into stores. And at the time I was the assistant direct sales manager. I was eventually promoted to full direct sales manager, which brought with it no increase in, in salary or anything like that, but hey, it was a promotion. So that was nice. <laughs> um, and indeed my status as being in direct sales also did not endear me to editorial because editorial's philosophy at the time was if you were creative, you worked in editorial. Hmm. If you worked for direct sales or circulation or whatever, you were not creative because if you were creative, you'd work in editorial. You know, It was a nice, simple, cyclical point of view. The concept that this guy in direct sales was coming in and writing these stories that fans were getting excited about did not sit well with editorial. Indeed, there were the opinions of some that I was not writing the stories at all, that Allesley was heavily rewriting them. Wow. Um, which was completely untrue. But And indeed, there, there were editors who disagreed with pretty much everything I did. For instance, in The Death of Gene DeWolf, I have Spider-Man finding out on like page four or something like that, that Gene is dead. And his response was the same as you or I would be, in which he's stunned. And he says, she's dead? How, how could she be dead? I just saw her the other day. What do you mean dead? And I was told by an an editor that I had gotten that completely wrong, that what Spider-Man should have done was scream, she's dead, she can't be dead. And he should have ripped a lamppost out of the ground and started hitting a car going, she can't be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, when you're a superhero, the response to getting bad news is to, inflict thousands of dollars worth of property damage. (laughs) You know, I mean, I thought that was kind of absurd,
1: but... Can I ask, what was your literal response in that moment? What was your, how did you reason out, no, 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 this is what actually Peter Parker would do?
2: I just said, well, I (laughs) disagree. I didn't say something like, you raving which i could have said because you know i was still the assistant direct sales manager i had to work with these people right so if they told me something remarkably stupid i couldn't say that's remarkably stupid because then they're going to be offended and now i have another problem on my head so i would just take what they said with a grain of salt and smile and nod and go okay as if i was really paying attention and You know, all it really did was reinforce for me that what I was doing was right, because if they thought it was wrong, but that was their definition of being right, then they clearly had no freaking idea what they were talking
0: about. (laughs) Uh, You seem like you get pretty steady work from then on in terms of writing. How long did you stay on the staff as the, uh, the on the sales team?
2: Um, I stayed on as salesman, as uh, eventually sales manager, for another. I don't. Th- I think like two years. I resigned my position in 1987. So kind of like you know, check whenever. When, when did Gene DeWolf come out?
0: Uh, was it was mid early 85. Uh, yeah, July 85.
2: Another two years.
1: Wow. Yeah. Did you find things were easier after that?
2: Well, no, no, not at all. I mean, it was funny. I ran into Priest, you know, then obviously now Priest, at a convention a few months ago, back when we still had conventions. And he said to me, why did you leave Spider-Man anyway? And I looked at him astounded, and I said, because you fired me. (laughs) And he said, no, I didn't. I said, yes, you did. You (laughs) fired me off of Spider-Man. And he said, I did? And I said, yes, (laughs) that's why I left. So, um, and that is indeed why I stopped writing Spider-Man, because I was fired off of the book. And then some months later, Bob Harris came into my office. And he said, I'd like to talk to you about a writing assignment. And the first thing I said is, could you come back after five o'clock? Because during the day, I'm the Marvel direct sales manager and i shouldn't really be talking about writing during that day and he said fine and he came back after five o'clock and he said he was interested in having me write the hulk and i was immediately suspicious and i said aren't you concerned that we're going to get pushed back from editorial and he said no i'm not worried about that at all nobody else wants to write it." <laughs> And I said, what do you mean nobody else? And he says, I have approached every writer (laughs) that Marvel has, and nobody wants to write the Hulk. I then approached every editor who writes on the side, and none of them want to write the Hulk. If you don't write the Hulk, I'm going to have to. (laughs) And someone else will then have to edit it. And you have to understand, I wasn't reading the book at the time. And I said, You know, I think my strength is dialogue, and I don't know what I can do dialogue-wise for a character who has a six-word vocabulary, all of which are single-syllable words. And he said, no, 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 no. That's not the Hulk now. The Hulk is gray, And he's back to the way he was in the very beginning when he was articulate. Al changed it, which is why it always breaks me up to this day when people say to me, why did you make the Hulk gray and intelligent? I didn't. Al Milgram did that. And he said, the Rick Jones is now the monosyllabic Green Hulk. And you can do with that whatever you want. And I said, well, the first thing I'm going to do is make sure to get rid of that because Rick Jones should not be superheroic. This, of course, was years before A-bomb that Rick Jones should be the one normal guy in the Marvel universe. So I did that storyline in which I did away with Rick being the green Hulk. And I focused entirely on the, the gray Hulk who would change only at nighttime and sales on the book began to skyrocket shortly after that. And indeed, nobody at Marvel gave the slightest of dams about me writing The Hulk because nobody else was interested in it. So I mean, when I eventually did write Spider-Man many years later, by that point, I was so established as a
1: writer that nobody cared anymore. Wow. Where do you see the death of Gene the Wolf in terms of just like the trajectory of how your career ended up going? Or cause because I was it also like just a blip before you, you actually got started maybe with the Hulk or something? Well, it certainly put my name out there. I mean, the
2: death of Gene the Wolf was pretty much unlike any other Spider-Man stories that were being published at the time, or indeed any that had been published. So it enabled me to hit the ground running, in terms of getting fan attention, because people were going, "Have you read Spectacular Spider-Man? Have you seen the death of Jean De Wolf? It's this really dark and intense story." And indeed, when we had the uh, the penultimate issue that seemed to end with the death of Betty Brand, fans actually thought we had killed Betty. I mean, we, we really received tons of alarmed fan mail going, no, you killed <laughs> Betty! They didn't even ask if we had done it. They th- assumed we had killed right. Betty. Because we killed Gene DeWolf, so why the hell not? And it served to make me Peter David, the writer of grim and gritty Spider-Man stories. <laughs> As my career progressed and humor tended to work its way into my stories, I somehow evolved into Peter David, the writer who puts humor into his stories all the time. (laughs) Which I didn't quite understand because to me, humor is just another storytelling tool. But most comic book writers tend to not use it when you're writing movies or books you want to have humor to to change things up i mean i mean a perfect example of it is raiders of the lost ark indiana jones is in this desperate fight they've kidnapped marion you know all these guys are trying to kill him he suddenly finds himself confronted with a swordsman and he basically goes like Screw this! Pulls out his gun and shoots the guy from thirty feet away. That when I the first time I saw that in the theater, it got a huge laugh. Now you could say, well, what's humor doing in such a serious point in the movie? Well, you want to do that because you want to try and and leaven things up every now and then, if for no other reason than that if you make the audience laugh. The best kind of laughter is laughter that catches in the audience's throat. So this is the best reaction from your audience.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, that, that kind of thing, that, that screwing with their emotions is something that I oftentimes try to do. Use humor as a leavening thing. Death of Gene DeWolf really had little to no humor in it at all. It was pretty much just straight-up deadly serious. But that's what the story called for. There weren't really many points in in that storyline that that called for humorous pauses. My subsequent stories did tend to lend themselves to humor, especially when you're dealing with Spider-Man, whose defensive mechanism is to crack jokes all the time. So, you know, when you're writing the story involving someone who's a wiseacre, you're going to have humor in there just from dint of
1: writing the character as he is. So, so you feel like that, in a way, this is kind of the perfect entry point because it allowed you to kind of show readers, show the editorial staff that you know, you had a a total handle of the dramatic side of things, but also, you know, when the opportunity arose, you could, you know, you know, spin these jokes and and things like that. Would you say that was part of the dynamic? I think the basic
2: dynamic is that it was really good story. Yeah. And if you put out something that's a really good story, people will react to that. I mean, that's really all it comes down to. I mean, if you really want to, you can go to what Pater said, we are in the boredom killing business. And if you write a story that sufficiently manages to kill the audience's boredom, then you're doing your job.
0: Mm. Let's go back to, you know, you mentioned Priest had wanted to get into the story, kill Gene DeWolf. How did Sin Eater become part of it? Was it your creation? Was that from Priest or where was that? Um,
2: I actually got the concept of a Sin Eater from, oh God, there was a TV movie, I'm blanking on the name, it starred um, Lindsay Wagner, uh, the bionic woman, in which she played a doctor in the old frontier, and in the course of that, she encountered a Sin Eater.
0: Our um, our intrepid producer, Jorge, believes the movie is called The Incredible Journey of Dr. Meg Laurel.
2: That's it. That's exactly <laughs> it. Now, I had never heard of that before. A sin eater is basically a guy who, when you died, fruits were put on your chest, you know, edible things. And the sin eater would come and eat the fruits, and would therefore symbolically take your sins into himself, which I thought was fascinating. And I wound up working him into the storyline, an entertaining coda to that. A couple of years later, I was at a restaurant, and who should be sitting in the restaurant but freaking Lindsay Wagner. <laughs> and she was sitting there with a couple, a couple of friends having lunch. And I walked over to her and I said, you know, I just wanted to say that. Um, I saw you in the incredible journey of Dr. Meg Laurel. And I was fascinated by the character of the city Eater, And I actually worked him into a comic book that I wrote. And a young guy who was with her looked at me and said, oh my god you're peter
0: david <laughs> and i went
2: yes and he went oh man i love your work and Lindsay wagner's like what's happening here <laughs> you know because this fan comes over to talk to her and suddenly one of the guys who's with her is freaking out over the fan <laughs> yeah yeah you know that that kind of thing has happened that's <laughs> that kind of thing has happened to me several times since, <laughs> but um, that's where I—that's where I got the sin eater from.
0: Uh, there's um there's a moment in the story where uh we're walking through new york city and i love rich buckler's art throughout this so i'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more but um we get a a little cameo of what looks like charles bronson reading the newspaper uh and and, you know it's, it's about um vigilantes and stuff like that and i i i love that kind of little fun touch it it's still great and it still got me and then How it feels, you know, when you look at the Sin Eater who's in this story, who feels like so New York and creepy and and like everything feels hot and gross around him, which I I love. It feels part of like the world that you would imagine. um, Oh, gosh, what's the name of um, of Charles Bronson's character? Paul Kersey, um, that character, uh, that world that he lives in.
2: Hey, it's New York City. It could have just been Charles Bronson walking
0: around.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so fascinating to me that you mentioned that uh, that this particular era of Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man was really leaning into that gritty, uh, kind of dark street level um, crime noir type story. Um, how aware of those things are you at the time? Because, you know, we're talking about the mid-80s, we're talking about the rise of the Punisher, of the anti-hero in general, of these kind of darker, you know, kind of grimier stories. Is that something that um, that you had a general awareness of at the time? Because, I mean, I couldn't really tell you what the great influences of, you know, uh, Marvel Comics are right now. Uh, or is that just something that maybe, you know, you're you're kind of you know swimming in that at the moment and then you know as time passes you're able to categorize and understand things a little bit more oh no i was very
2: aware that comic books had undertaken a darker tone uh guys like frank miller had reshaped comic books with their work frank miller alan moore we were all you know they were leading the way and we were all trying to emulate them because for the simple reason that it was popular i mean anything that can get people reading comic books we were all for and if it meant emulating miller or or more in our undertaking okay well fine if if people wanted to have dark grim and gritty stuff rather than the traditional you know superhero slugging supervillain stuff okay it's our job to uh give the readers what they want and to produce publishable stories so that's what my editor wanted and if that was the uh the lead that guys like uh, miller and Moore were were setting out there so be it
1: was that your the impetus behind wanting to include daredevil in this story
2: i honestly don't remember why i wanted to include daredevil i mean Maybe it was because Frank's influence in Daredevil was so profound that I thought, if we're going to have it be grim and gritty, why don't we take the king of grim and gritty and make him a guest star in the story? I also liked the notion of him figuring out that Peter Parker was Spider-Man, which made sense to me. They had established that Daredevil, once he hears a heartbeat, always remembers it. So he's certainly been around Spider-Man enough times if he runs into Peter Parker he should be able to identify him instantly. And and Marvel signed off on having uh, Daredevil learning uh that that Peter was Spider-Man. I mean that just seemed to make sense to me. I,
0: I imagine maybe 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 not the some of the edit, folks in editorial saw a, a, that was just another thing that they looked at you and were like, "Wait, this guy doing—he's now doing the, the I, secret identity swap with these characters in his like in this book, and like getting a little annoyed yeah. with you. There. It's possible. <laughs> we see uh, Spidey in the black costume here. Um, was was that the symbiote suit or just the the, the traditional black costume?
2: That's correct.
0: Did that influence anything uh, in in terms of how you were taking the story or why Jim was going in this direction for the story?
2: Jim wanted to have him wearing the black and white costume in Spectacular Spider-Man because he felt that that was the darker, grimmer costume. He would continue to wear the blue and red in Amazing, but he'd have the black and white one in Spectacular. I personally didn't give the slightest of dams. I mean... Spider Man is Spider Man. No matter what costume he's wearing, he's still identifiably Spider Man. I mean, he's gone through what, six different costumes in the movies alone? Sure. And he's still clearly Spider Man,
1: even if he's Night Monkey. I mean, you know, we know (laughs) that that, that this is who he is. I I mean, that, you know, immediately begs the question for me is, it's funny and, and really. Wonderful for me to because you're you're you, you've written these uh, uh, symbiote Spider-Man stories, you know, in the current day uh, that I think occupy such a specific and such a wonderful corner of the Marvel universe and are even though it's a Spider-Man book, it is a very specific book. You know what you're going to get when you're opening those pages. Going back to the very beginning, then did you find a, a certain kinship with this? side of spider-man with the the with the black suit whether you know however it, it is um kind of put on uh, Spidey's body did you is there something within that specifically that you find um different or enticing or interesting or or, or that it, it wants you to come back to the table for it specifically that's a great question no
2: <laughs> it's clothing i don't really invest that much in clothing on a given day i wear a t-shirt and sweats i i mean i would be like albert einstein who stocked his his closet with the identical clothing so he wouldn't have to think about what he was going to wear that day um i really don't attribute any importance to what costume he's wearing The bottom line is that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. You know, it doesn't matter whether he's wearing a black and white costume, a blue and red costume, or Fantastic Four costume with a paper bag on his head. He's still Peter Parker. I mean, that's why I knew Ben Riley wasn't going to last as Spider-Man. Well, Mm. Spider-Man is Ben Riley now. No, he's Peter Parker. Mm. You know, he will always be Peter Parker. That's just the bottom line. Um, so, no, whatever outfit he's wearing is of little to no relevance to me. The only thing that makes the black and white costume interesting is if it's actually the Venom costume, because that adds a whole nother dynamic to the proceedings. Then you're basically dealing with two characters, one of whom is unaware of the presence of the other character. Then you've got an interesting and different dynamic in your story. But if it's just made of standard black and white cloth, no, I don't attach any importance to it.
0: (laughs) Um, The uh, you know, you you mentioned, obviously, this is a very serious story uh, and there's little bits of very little humor. But there I had to point out as we talk about this two favorite bits for me. One is in Josie's bar. Where you know, like the things are getting busted up, and, and the bartender's like, please, just don't, don't break the window, and then Spidey swings right in through the window, got a full laugh for me. I cracked up with that one, um, and then in the last uh the fourth part uh, when uh, ned and jonah finally come back from their trip and everything's you know going crazy they get off the elevator and jonah uh and ned are walking and jonah says out of my way or you're fired and the guy's like but that'll not work here and jonah's <laughs> like fine you're hired <laughs> now you're through get out died so great
2: yeah jonah jonah is a lot of fun um i i love j jonah jameson and Actually, this has nothing to do with anything, but there was a time where I was in Owsley's office and Tom DeFalco was explaining to me my deficiencies as a writer. And what he was saying was that I didn't think about the long term. All I thought about was the immediate story. And he said, for example, I, meaning Tom, could write a story in which we kill off Jonah Jameson. It would be this whole dramatic story, and in the end, he's dying in Spidey's arms, and Spidey reveals his identity to him, and Jonah and Peter finally have a rapprochement, and then Jonah dies. And it would be an incredible story. And then Tom says to me, but then what do you do the next issue? And without hesitation, I said, well, I'd have the kingpin buy the daily bugle. And he goes, what? And I said, sure. I mean, the kingpin is a businessman. I would have him buy the daily bugle. And you'd have the whole staff going, we're not going to work for the kingpin. He's a criminal. And the kingpin would come in and he would address them. And he said, look, I don't give a damn what you print. I simply bought the bugle as an investment. If it makes money, I don't care what stories you want to write. Write stories about me. Fine. I don't care. I will never use my interest to shape what it is the Daily Bugle prints, which is more than you could say for my predecessor. And by the way, I've also studied your medical coverage here, and it sucks it's absolutely terrible i'm going to be instituting entirely new medical coverage i also noticed you don't have dental well now you're going to have dental (laughs) and now the daily bugle is split because half of the reporters are going well we're still not going to work for the kingpin because he's a criminal and the other half is going but dental We'll have full medical coverage and he's not going to make us write when he wants to write, which is more than Jonah ever did. And now the bugle has a big problem because half of its staff is picketing the daily bugle and you've got Peter Parker stuck in the middle because on the one hand, it's the kingpin, but on the other hand, medical coverage. You know, and what's Peter gonna do? And I'm getting more and more excited. And I say to and I turn to Aslan, I say go, Jim, we gotta kill off Jonah. (laughs) And Jim's going, Well, that really sounds interesting. And poor DeFalco is going, Okay, you clearly were not listening. To what I was saying. And I said, no, I was listening, and I think it's fantastic. You write your story, and then we'll have the Kingman come in and buy the Daily Bugle, and fans are going to go nuts because no one's going to be expecting this. This is fantastic. <laughs> so that was pretty much the last time that Tom DeFalco tried to tell me what it was. <laughs> I still think to this day that would be a kick-ass story.
0: Uh, yeah, It would. <laughs> um, Peter, we're, we're excited for uh, the maestro coming up. I'm sure uh, I would like to hopefully talk to you again about some other stories. Um, yeah, I always appreciate your time and uh, appreciate everything you've done for Marvel. Happy to do it. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. You're welcome. Big thanks again to Peter David. You can, of course, read the death of Gene Wolf storyline on Marvel Unlimited and get ready for Amazing Spider-Man, Sins Rising, real soon. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by me, Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, and M.R. Daniel. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton tried to be a sim eater, but he's allergic to apples. He's our audio development manager I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel.
1: Your universe.